This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Just a warning before we jump in that there's a little bit of bad language in today's episode. A couple of weeks ago, Representative Katie Porter announced her candidacy for the seat in the United States Senate from California that comes up for election in 2024. Especially in times like these, California needs a warrior in Washington. That's exactly why I'm announcing my candidacy for the United States Senate in 2024. On Thursday, after we recorded the interview you're about to hear, Adam Schiff who you may remember led the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump, announced that he too was throwing his hat in the ring. The thing that makes these announcements interesting is that the seat isn't actually vacant yet. It still belongs to Dianne Feinstein, who's been under pressure to retire for a few years now. At age 88 and the oldest senator, she is under intense but quiet scrutiny about her mental fitness to serve. So as California shapes up to be the first state where progressives and moderates will be fighting among themselves in the Democratic Party, we'll look at exactly why California will be so vital in 2024. I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. So in the big picture sense, it's a state that's upwards of 60% Democratic overall, and it's usually pretty much impossible for a Republican to win statewide. Now, when you... Tool Copen is the deputy D.C. bureau chief for the Boston Globe. But before that, she was the Washington correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle, covering California state politics. Right now, the Speaker of the House, uh, we actually just went from a Californian Speaker of the House to a Californian Speaker of the House with the party switch. So, you know, the the new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, comes from a very, very Republican part of California. And then the rest of California, there are parts that are extremely blue, extremely progressive. So really, on balance, you're looking at a very democratic state that tends to skew progressive, but it's still a mix county to county and neighborhood to neighborhood. In April last year, she wrote about the murmurings of disquiet over Senator Feinstein's mental capacity and her ability to keep doing such a tough job. There have sort of been whispers about Diane Feinstein's memory for years, and there was an effort back in 2020 to kind of circumvent her from becoming chair of the very important Judiciary Committee if Democrats were to regain control of the Senate, which they ultimately did. There was sort of some backroom maneuvering and she stepped aside from being in line to be chair to allow someone else to chair the committee. That was always couched in terms of 
whether she would be sort of enough of an attack dog or as aggressive as Democrats needed to confirm judges through that committee and stand up to Republicans. Uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham and the ranking member, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, hugging today at the end of the Judiciary Committee hearing for Judge Amy Coney uh, Barrett. Surprising for a couple reasons. Um, one of them being a lot of Democrats don't think Feinstein has been uh, strong enough on this issue. Then my colleague and I at the San Francisco Chronicle, Joe Garofoli, who with whom I worked on the story, we really started to hear things that weren't just, you know, whispers, but rather concrete examples of Senator Feinstein having serious memory lapses. And as we reported over the course of months, we got more and more of these and critically several members of the Senate and Congress who were willing not to put their names on it due to the the very strong sensitivities, both their personal relationships with her, their relationships with others, but they were willing to say as, as a senator or as a member of Congress that this was becoming an increasing problem. And, you know, we compiled those examples and those statements into the story, as well as former staff. And they were very vivid. Can you just give us one or two illustrative examples to explain why this did indeed rattle people who read it? Sure. There was one particular example uh, that we actually opened the story with about a Democratic California member of Congress who had an extended conversation with Senator Feinstein. And these were two people that had worked together over many years, over a decade. They found that Senator Feinstein not only did not remember who they were, But they had to, over the course of the interaction, which lasted several hours, reintroduce themselves multiple times. Another example, there was a funeral the summer before we published the story of someone that Senator Feinstein knew very well. It was a memorial service, and she rose to speak and gave remarks without once mentioning the deceased. And it really caused a buzz among the crowd. They were shocked that she would give memorial remarks, and she actually was sort of nudged by her staff to go up a second time. And the second time she spoke, she mentioned the deceased. And uh, that that really alarmed folks in the crowd as well. And what has she actually, and her team, said in response to all your reporting and the sort of word that has been uh, almost an open secret on Capitol Hill all this time? You know, what have they said and what has the impact of them been, But you know, on polling in California uh, and so on? She denies that there's an issue. Senator Feinstein issued a statement. The real question is whether I'm still an effective representative for 40 million Californians. And the record shows that I am. At the time of our story publishing, it was several weeks after the passing of her her longtime husband, who had been sick for quite some time. And she attributed some struggles to the grief and difficulty of losing her husband. Now, we we were well aware of that factor. And obviously, on a human level, your heart goes out to her. But it was very clear from our reporting that the issue predated her husband's condition. And while, you know, it's impossible to say whether the stress exacerbated it, we were very confident that this was not a passing issue in relation to the health of her husband. Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who has long been close with Senator Feinstein, you know, provided an on-the-record statement defending 
her ability to deliver for the state of California, our reporting indicated that that's really a testament to her staff, uh, not something necessarily that she is able to lead the way she once was. But there are those who defend her record in terms of what she her office is able to accomplish as a testament to her capacity to serve in the position. I mean, given all of this, you would more or less assume that Diane Feinstein won't seek re-election in 2024. She would be 91 on election day that year. Which, and yet, despite that, she hinted this week that only a fool would counter out so early on. Um, progressive news website Raw Story reported that the uh, senator would not announce her decision this year at all and instead would keep everyone guessing until 2024 uh, with this quote, I need a little bit of time so it's not this year. Uh, even though, of course, she will turn 90 this year, it's not the right time for her to make this decision. Now, I say all this while conscious that I did actually report on the re-election campaign as senator of one Strom Thurmond of South Carolina in 1996 when he was 93 years old and he was seeking re-election for a term that everyone knew would mean he would be in the Senate age 100 and I've got to tell you he won. Strom Thurmond won that election and did indeed stay in the Senate till he was 100 years old. I mean this was a guy so old he had run for president in 1948 and there he was still in the Senate as the 21st century uh, began. It's sort of mind-boggling. But despite all that history, I mean, people, uh, I'm guessing, in California do still reckon that Feinstein won't run again, right? I don't know anyone in Washington who would expect her to do it. She has virtually no money in her campaign account, about $10,000 cash on hand, which is pennies for an average member of Congress, let alone a senator, let alone a senator from California who tend to be fundraising juggernauts and who need a ton of money to run in that state. You know, TV airtime is everything to a statewide campaign. So just on dollars and cents alone, she is not prepared for another run. Few think she's up to another run, even those close to her. That said, ultimately, the decision is hers to make. And she says she, you know, has no news to announce on whether she will or will not seek re-election. Most of her colleagues do seem to be proceeding on the assumption that there will be, in effect, a vacancy come 2024. And now at least one, uh, maybe more, are, are out of the block saying they are keen to fill those shoes. First out of the blocks was Katie Porter. Porter's whiteboard presentations and withering questioning at House hearings have often gone viral, winning her a national following of fans willing to give her campaign donations. Who has made quite a name for herself, uh, if only on social media, where those clips of her, as she explains various points of policy or politics, uh, those have gone viral often. Now, how much did Abvi spend on stock buybacks and shareholders, stock, stock buybacks and dividends to enrich your shareholders from 2013 to 2018? Uh, dividends didn't have to come back with that, a number for that over that period of time. $50 billion. 
She's definitely one of the people who's made a bit of a reputation. She came out right out of the blocks to say, yeah, she wants to run for this Senate seat. Yeah, it. I think it came as a surprise to a lot of people that she went ahead and announced before Senator Feinstein made a decision. It was very well assumed that this was going to be a crowded race and more or less an open seat. But we sort of anticipated that there would be some deference to wait for Senator Feinstein to officially kind of make clear that she would not run again. But Porter, who has been a sort of brash progressive, although she is from a what's considered a swing seat in the suburbs of Los Angeles, she just jumped right in and in so doing basically kicked off the floodgates. So we expect that uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who is also a progressive from Oakland. I think it's only been recently that it's become clear that Congresswoman Lee was looking at running for it in her own right. And as you said, while she has not formally announced it, I think there's little doubt that she is in this race. There are a few other progressives who who may get into the race, and certainly you'd expect others to get in sort of once the floodgates open. Uh, But Katie Porter was the one to sort of get out there and say, essentially, regardless of what Senator Feinstein decides, she is running for this seat. And and does she get a bounce from that sort of first mover advantage? Do people admire the pluck uh, of going early? Or does that actually hurt her from the start because people think it's kind of rude to do that when the incumbent is already there and hasn't made her own decision? I'm sure that there are people who had both reactions out there. Uh, I don't know if it moves the race. She is a fundraising powerhouse. I mean, she had, I think, $7 million in the bank when she announced. She raised over a million in the first 24 hours after announcing. She has always been a prolific fundraiser. She will have a lot of money. She will have a lot of name recognition. Now, historically in California, just sort of as a quirky aspect of its politics, it's typically very hard for Southern Californians to win statewide office. Statewide office has been dominated by Northern Californians for quite some time. Alex Padilla is an exception. He is the other senator in California, but he was appointed to that position by Governor Gavin Newsom uh, when Kamala Harris became vice president. So Barbara Lee, if she were to get officially get in, you know, coming from Northern California, even though she's behind in fundraising, she's behind in announcement, she is also a political powerhouse in California. And certainly there are a lot of very talented politicians in California who are experienced, who've won a lot of races there, who have allies up and down. So it's going to be an intense race, no matter what. I mean, this is a huge place, California, tens of millions of people, as big as, you know, plenty of countries, and yet just two seats in the Senate. So you've got a lot of talent chasing. And one of which that seat has been held by Senator Feinstein since the 1990s. So Right, she's had a lock <laughs> on it for 30 years. And so you've got all that pent up ambition. So no wonder this is going to be quite the race. Your point about the geography, fascinating, where sort of LA uh, politicians tend to lose out to San Francisco ones crudely, South 
and North. But just on the on the politics of it as well, the sort of ideology of it, Katie Porter has been a bit of a hero for progressives, partly because of those explanatory whiteboard videos go down very well. She was photographed reading The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck <laughs> as the House was struggling to uh, get its votes together for Kevin McCarthy. So, you know, she's got a following. But Barbara Lee has this standing, doesn't she, as the one voice, the sole dissenter who after 9-11 refused to give the authorization of military force to then-President George W. Bush. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. She can claim some serious prescience there and sort of that political courage that I would have thought progressive voters in California would really warm to. Barbara Lee is one of the first really vanguard progressives in Congress. She is also a black woman who, you know, worked on the Shirley Chisholm campaign, which was, you know, the first black woman campaign for president. She was one of the earliest supporters of Kamala Harris when she came on the stage. There is no black woman in the Senate at the moment since Kamala Harris's departure, and Kamala Harris was only the second ever. Now, she is older. So there will be all these different kind of complexions to the race in terms of the battle for progressivism. Katie Porter is actually an acolyte of Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts. In fact, Warren made the bold move to endorse Porter's candidacy even before sort of the field takes shape. And even though Senator Warren's own colleague, Senator Feinstein, technically has not ruled out of the race. That's how close Warren and Porter are. They, I mean, and that go violates all kinds of Senate conventions, doesn't it? Yes, because they literally they are they are direct colleagues, and there's meant to be all this sort of comity between uh, fellow members of this very exclusive club, the Senate. It's quite a diss for Elizabeth Warren to 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 di- to endorse a candidate when when Diane Feinstein hasn't even announced she's retiring. It is highly unusual. It speaks to the fact that no one really expects her to run. But yes, it is a highly unusual sort of break of decorum to do so. California is almost certainly going to elect a progressive Democrat to the Senate because that's the way it's been trending. But within that, there's a lot of different kinds of progressivism. And, you know, so it's going to be anyone who tells you that they know how this race is going to shake out is is full of it. California has an interesting primary system where it's a top two primary. So the June before November election day, every single person who's in the race is on the ballot and people vote and the top two highest vote getters advance to the general. So it's not like one Democrat and one Republican. And field splitting could be a real factor if you have lots and lots and lots of progressives all splitting the vote. So there is a lot to shake out in terms of how this race goes. Yeah, this is the so-called jungle primary in which the yes. top two, and in, in Democrats and Republicans running against each other, the top two could be two Democrats. And you could imagine a situation where you have, I don't know, the so-called establishment liberal like Adam Schiff, who made a bit, we covered him on this podcast a lot because of his role as a sort of prosecutor of Donald Trump in the impeachment trial up against yet another kind of progressive like Barbara Lee or Katie Porter. So it's all action on that Democratic side. We haven't even mentioned uh, the Republican race, partly because we have the same assumption you do, which is this is a blue state and it's a Democrat who in the end 
wins. But nevertheless, Republicans are fighting each other in California. And on Friday, the day that this episode uh, drops, Ronna McDaniel, who is currently chair of the Republican National Committee, uh, is inside her own battle, facing a pretty tough attempt to oust her. Just talk us through who, who uh, that battle and who Ronna McDaniel is up against. That's right. So Ronna McDaniel is facing a challenge from Hermit Dillon, who is from California. She's an attorney from California who has sort of made her name in Republican politics as an attorney who kind of champions conservative causes. Most people believe that Ronna McDaniel will still win uh, and has the majority of committee members on her side, but it's certainly a more intense than expected battle. And and yes, in the Senate race, there will be a Republican candidate. Uh, the way it tends to work for statewide offices in, in California is if some Republican really is a glutton for punishment, they go for it. But otherwise, it's sort of a, like, who's going to take this one? Who's going to put up this sort of largely known to be futile effort? Every once in a while, there's a true Republican viable candidate. But this is going to be a race among among Democrats. Now, with the top two system, you know, a Republican would love to make it into the top two. The question becomes with vote splitting and how big the Democratic field is, whether it's two Democrats in November or a Democrat and Republican. But ultimately, everyone expects the Democrat to prevail. No, I think that's right. It's quite a shift, obviously, you know, not that long ago that Republicans were winning statewide office in California. Arnold Schwarzenegger, famously as governor, and longer ago than that, obviously, Ronald Reagan as a two-term governor. So it did happen, but no longer, really. Let's just talk a little bit about California itself and why it matters so much. It's often called a mega state because of the sheer size of its economy. As I said, if it was a country, it would be a rich and powerful one. It has produced really important politicians. I just wonder whether you think it still matters as much, partly actually because it is so obviously a safe blue state. It doesn't tend to get much attention in national campaigns because Republicans write it off and Democrats don't even need to particularly bother campaigning. And there is, I think this will surprise people uh, outside the United States, there is outward emigration from California, New York as well, actually, that in the last census, those both those states, their population went down, which meant they lost a congressional seat, while instead Texas and Florida gained, uh, as if that's where the energy is moving. I mean, is you know, people used to say, as California goes, so goes the nation. It was a real trailblazer for the rest of the country. Is it losing its importance uh, in national and including that democratic politics? I would say it matters a lot in democratic politics. California remains sort of a bastion of democratic ideas. It is always on the forefront of climate policy and progressivism. And, you know, it's a sort of testing ground and a laboratory for a lot of those ideas because there's such an overwhelming majority of Democrats at the state level, they pass a lot of progressive policies. And so you can really influence the entire nation. So when California raises its fuel economy standards, for example, for vehicles, it's a big enough market that no car manufacturer is going to produce one set of vehicles for California and one set for the rest of the country. It, it brings everyone's standards up. So it's still a powerhouse. It's still important. Yes, there is an outmigration. It's an expensive place to live. 
there are all these real problems in the state too of homelessness and really extreme poverty not that far from these areas of extreme wealth. So it's got kind of all of that going on at the same time. But I think for the foreseeable future, California will remain an incredibly important bellwether of democratic politics. And because, you know, democratic politics are still uh, uh, just about 50% of the country, that makes it a very important state. Now, Tull, we do like to ask our guests a what else question on the podcast where we like to look at something completely different. I did want to stick this time with California, albeit on a much graver topic, because in the space of just two days this week, two shooters killed 18 people, all of whom were thought to be of Asian or Hispanic uh, descent. And just last week, gunmen killed six people in Tulare County, including a 16-year-old and her 10-month-old child. Uh, The Gun Violence Archive, which keeps count of this, says the number of mass shootings in America so far this year, and remember, as, uh, as we talk, it's not even the end of January, is already in the 40s. Um, We've talked a lot and we've reported on gun safety reform on this podcast. We know that Congress passed legislation last summer in an attempt to try to stem these mass shootings. But from what you can see in Washington, D.C., talking to people who are you know, lawmakers making these decisions, what more do you think it will take? What has to happen before people act to make these types of events a, a, a thing of the past? You know, it's tempting to just be glib and say nothing. Gun politics in this country seem incredibly intractable. It's one of those issues where there's a clear consensus among the American people in favor of some sensible compromise that just doesn't translate into the way our politics are structured. So I I have a hard time considering all the tragedies we as a country have witnessed of children at schools you know, just these senseless tragedies. I don't know that there's anything on that front that can move the needle other than a systematic change in the structure and makeup of our politics until it becomes kind of a singular, all-consuming priority for voters. It's not going to motivate national politics that way. Uh, And I don't think that's something that's going to have to come through, unfortunately, the senseless tragedies that seem to happen all the time. Tall Copen of the Boston Globe, thank you so much for joining me on Politics Weekly America. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all from me this week. The producer is Daniel Stevens. The executive producer this week is Max Sanderson. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.